been in a series of messages on prayer. When we pray, who is God? Who is this God that we are praying to? That's really the big question. Even more so than what I ask when I pray is who is the God that I am praying to? Because that answers the question is can I expect a response? How does he answer? What's he going to do when he, when he answers? Who is this God that I am praying to? Now there are a number of notions out there, if you will, about who God is. First of all is what I call the divine genie. And this is the way the divine genie works. When I pray, I sort of rub the bottle that he lives in and he jumps out and he answers my prayer and gets something done for me. And then when I'm finished with him answering my prayer and doing what I want him to do, he jumps back in the bottle again until he's summons to come out another time. So most of the time God's contained in his bottle. But if I pray right, pray enough, say the right words, rub it just right, he jumps out and he comes out for me. Now, the second idea that is real popular about who God is is very conducive to this season of this year, and that is that God is our heavenly Santa Claus. And when we pray, we basically climb up in His lap and we give Him our request. And then if He answers our request, He sort of jumps down the prayer chimney and lays the gifts of our answers all around the tree of our life. And so God's sort of like our year-round Santa Claus. And uh, so we come to him in prayer hoping that he will answer, hoping that he will jump down the chimney and hoping that he'll give us the answers that we're looking for. Now, the opposite extreme of that is that God is the eternal judge and he has his law book. And if we don't keep all the laws and the law book like we are supposed to, that God is sitting up in heaven in his royal robes, and he is just waiting to see that if we're going to mess up so that he can read in his law book, judge us, let us have it, and punish us but good. And when we think about this God, who is sort of like that eternal judge who's waiting, just waiting for us to provoke him so he can come along and he can judge us and let us have it, then we begin to see that every negative thing that happens in our lives has to eventually be traced back to God, and it has to be some form of judgment that God is meeting out to us because we have violated a law in the law book. Now, the final idea about God answering prayer is that God is some kind of nebulous energy force. In fact, sometimes He's called the force. And he's just sort of out there floating around and in a sort of a nebulous way. And we don't really don't know how to relate to him because he doesn't have any real personhood to him. So when we pray, we're sort of praying to this force out there. And we hope that he's going to respond and do something. That we'll see some kind of energy flowing in our direction. Now the problem with the energy force God and the law book God and Santa Claus God and genie God is that none of them exist. So when, when I pray to God who's my genie in the bottle and I don't get the answers that I'm looking for and He doesn't come out and do what I want Him to do, after a while I'm tempted to stop believing in Him. Same thing with Santa Claus God. When He doesn't jump down the chimney and answer prayers on notice and give me what I want, then you know when all of us grow out of 
Santa Claus at some point in our lives. So we tend to grow out of that God at some point in our lives. Now, the, the angry, judging God who's waiting for us to provoke Him... Well, that gets tough after a while, too. And we tend to get angry with God after a while because it looks like that His judgments on us at times are all out of proportion to what the sin is. And I mean, who wants to relate to a God who's just sitting up there in an impersonal way getting ready to throw a law book at you all the time? So after a while, we sort of give up on that God also. And then the force God, well... I mean, trying to play to some, pray to somebody who you can't relate to and you can't talk to. So all of that leads us in a direction of a God who doesn't exist. And that God, those gods don't exist. You see, the God who's revealed to us in Scripture, and Scripture is God's self-disclosure, His self-revelation of who He is. That God doesn't fit any of these descriptions. And that's why we get so defeated when we pray to God and we try to get Him to fit one of those descriptions. I want us this morning to see that a vision of God, of a God who listens and a God who answers prayer, has to begin where He begins in His self-revelation to us. And that is in His holiness. Not in his ability to jump out of bottles, not in his ability to jump down chimneys, not in his ability to be some kind of energy force or an angry judge, but it is rather a vision of the holiness of God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And as you are turning there, or if you've got your Bible on your phone, as you're turning your, phone, your Bibles on... This morning, Isaiah chapter 6, allow me to give you the background. Israel rose to its golden age during the reigns of David and his son Solomon. Greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. But when we join the prophet Isaiah in the 6th chapter of Isaiah, it is the 8th century and Israel is in the midst of a huge decline. They have become a puppet, essentially, of Assyria. Now, when Assyria at that time went through the world as it was and was conquering country after country, it gave you one of two options. You could either fight and be decimated and they would come in and literally burn your country to the ground and take prisoners back to their country to serve as slaves or you could sort of strike a peace deal with Assyria and you would pay them tribute. And so it... Israel, under King Uzziah, for years had been paying a tribute or essentially paying taxes to Assyria so Assyria wouldn't burn them to, to burn them to the ground and take over them. Uzziah had been the king of Israel for some time, acting as essentially a puppet king for the nation of Assyria. He has now died of leprosy, a leprosy that he got for disobeying the Lord. He had lived for years in isolation from his people since he was contagious and eaten up with this horrible disease. And because of his death, it was a time of crisis, grief, and uncertainty in Israel. And the folks were focusing on this crisis, this fear, this uncertainty of what was going to happen to them next. Isaiah is called as God's prophet in the midst of all of this. It's the year 740 B.C. when Uzziah dies and God calls Isaiah. Isaiah's name means Yahweh's salvation or God's salvation. Isaiah is married. He has two sons. He enjoyed access to the royal courtroom. 
and the death and the darkness that uh, surrounds the death of Uzziah is symptomatic or speaks of the darkness that is surrounding the nation of Israel at this time. And it is in the midst of this uncertainty, this darkness, that God speaks to Isaiah and calls him as his prophet. Let's join the story, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And my sermon outline is containing your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Prayer begins with recognizing the holiness of God, our sinfulness, and submitting to His cleansing. Notice that we must recognize and experience His holiness. That's what happens with Isaiah here. Verse 1. Isaiah says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The word translated saw there in the Hebrew means I gazed upon the Lord. In other words, I didn't give the Lord just a drive-by experience. I was in the presence of God and I just gazed upon the presence of God. I was fixated on the presence of God. He was the only focus that I had. I saw Him. I looked upon Him. I gazed at Him. I locked in on Him. I saw who? He says, I saw the Lord. The term Lord there is the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. It is a title of respect. It was a title of majesty. And it also meant master. What Isaiah says is that I went into that that vision of seeing God and I looked upon Him and I saw the One who is majestic and I saw the One who is my Master. I looked upon Him and in looking upon Him and who He is and what He is, He controls my life. He is my owner. He is my Master. How did He see Him? He says, I saw Him high and lifted up. He was above everything else. He says the train of his robe filled the temple. Now there are some significant symbolic concepts in that term. His 
train filled the temple. In the ancient world at that time, the monarchs would wear these great big robes and their trains that were behind them spoke of their power and their authority. The bigger the train that you had, the bigger, the larger was your authority and the larger was your kingdom. The idea of his train filling the temple is first of all the idea that the authority of God fills the earth. That there is no authority ultimately but his authority. The second idea of this train filling the temple was that the high priest of Israel would wear a robe when he would go into the presence of God. And God is saying, I am your high priest as you relate to me. Notice what it says about this train, that it does what it fills the temple. In other words, as God moves through this temple His entire being is filling the temple, so there's not room for anything else to be in the temple but God. And Isaiah is saying, as I gaze upon the Lord, what I realize is that He is the one that I relate to. He is the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is the one that fills everything. Nothing else and no one else can even compete with Him. He fills the whole place up. There's not room for anything else. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now notice verse 2. It says that there were seraphims there. Above him stood the seraphim. Notice how they are described. Each has six wings. With two they cover their face. With two they cover their feet. And with two they flew. Now, in the passage that I opened the service with today from Revelation chapter 4, we see the seraphim there in the presence of God essentially doing the same thing. Who and what are the seraphim? They are six-winged creatures who appear to us in Scripture as always being in the presence of God. They burn constantly in the presence of God. Do you remember back when Moses was walking through the desert and he encountered the burning bush? And he said the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses stood there and looked at that. And then God said, Moses, you're on holy ground. Well, that's essentially the idea here is that these seraphim are not consumed, but they burn constantly in the presence of God. And they have these six wings. Now, why does it say they cover their face? Because though they are in the presence of God, burning in the presence of God, speaking of the holiness of God, they will not allow themselves to look upon God. So they take two of those six wings and they cover their face so that they do not look upon the presence and the person of God. It is a posture of worship on their part. Notice what they are saying, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now again, we saw that in the passage that I read to open this service in the book of Revelation. Always you see this repeated in Scripture, in the presence of God, whether it's the seraphim or the angels or whatever, they are saying holy, and they are saying it three times over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, why do they repeat the term holy, holy, holy? Because in Jewish writing, if you said something three times over, you were putting all the emphasis on it you could possibly put. It was a sense of intensity. And so what they are saying as they look upon God is, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. We get, that's 
we're just trying to emphasize it over and over and over again. This is an intense environment of worship that we are in. And they are saying that as sort of a spontaneous, uncontrollable way of worshiping God. Because as they're in His presence, what they're doing is they are reflecting back what the, these seraphim are seeing and experiencing. So as these seraphim are in the presence of God, they cannot control themselves but to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Folks, when you and I step into that place of worship, we begin to respond to God as He is. And there is a spontaneity about that worship. It's not something that we can control and we can handle. We are just beginning to respond as only we can respond to the presence of God. God, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. You know, I've heard all the songs and everything else about when we get to heaven, we're going to walk on streets of gold and we're going to greet relatives and all that kind of good stuff. And it sounds nice and it's wonderful. It's not biblical, but it sounds nice and wonderful. When we get into the presence of God, when we die, the first thing we're going to do is fall on our face before Him. And we're not going to be asking, where is Mama and Uncle Joe? We're going to be looking at Him and saying, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. We cannot gonna our worship is just gonna be spontaneous. You are so holy, God. Now, what does it mean for him to be holy? First of all, the holiness of God speaks of his unapproachable brightness. Even though the seraphim are burning, one of the reasons they can't look upon him is because of his brightness. You remember when Jesus was transfigured? The Bible says that he just glowed with his light. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that he had to, I mean, book of Philippians, that he had to lay aside a lot of his glory when he came to this earth because if Jesus had walked on this earth with all of the glory and the holiness and immensity of who he is, people could not have stood in his presence. It would have blinded them. So the idea of the holiness of God is, first of all, the unapproachable brightness of God. Second, the idea of the holiness of God is his separateness. He's totally distinct from you and I. He's totally distinct from us. Listen, I don't need God to be just like me. I do not need God to be so weak and puny that I can manipulate him. I need God different from me. Does that make me feel at times uncomfortable? You better believe it. He is holy. He is distinct, separate from us in who He is. There's the sense of the holiness of God of being in awe of Him. It's this idea that I'm probing His greatness. I'm exploring who He is. And as I do so, I'm being awed by Him. If I haven't been awed by God recently... I haven't been with God. If I haven't been awed by Jesus recently, I haven't been with Jesus. Because we don't ever get used to being with Jesus. In the sense that, oh, here's Jesus. Big deal. The the awe factor in my life is going to tell me when I've been with him. Now, I know it's it said, well, Pastor, that sounds great, but you know, I, I don't, every day we're not going to have an Isaiah type of experience here, and that's true. But think about how God is there to awe us every day if we just take time to be awed by Him. Get up in the morning and look in the face. If you, you and I know any bit, I mean, I'm, 
I did not study medicine, but just taking two courses of biology in college, I was just blown away at just the chemistry of the blood that flows through our bodies and our immune system. I mean, somebody with intelligence had to put that together. That speaks of the greatness of God. Walk outside and look up and see what He created up there. Look at what He saw there. We lived at the beach uh, for a number of years, and I never woke up any morning thinking that the waves were going to come in and destroy us because we were so close to them. Why? Because the Bible says that the Lord has put a mark and He didn't allow them to go any farther than that. Look at the greatness of God, and then with your mind and your imagination that God has given, go into the Bible, read the stories about Jesus. Don't just use your ears to hear it. Just use your eyes to see it, your mind to run with it, your nose to smell it, and experience what it was like to be with Him when He healed people, when He talked with people, when He fed people. Use your mind and your imagination to go to the cross and and stand there and listen to the silence, the quiet silence of blood splashing on the rock as it comes out of His hands and realize that He's doing that for you. That is love. Go to the the tomb in your mind and imagine yourself there on Easter Sunday morning. Imagine the ground moving underneath you and an earthquake happening and a stone rolling away. And imagine what he looked like when he walked out of that tomb alive. See, that's the awesomeness of who he is. Verse 3, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word Lord there is the name for God. We're not exactly sure how it's pronounced. We think it's either Yahweh or Jehovah, but it's the name that was given to us. For God says, I, I want to be your friend. I want to be in relationship to you. So I'm going to give you my name so you can know me. You can know how to call on me. But it's the Lord of hosts. The word host there means to mass an army. God is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be your friend. But I want you to understand who I am. Isaiah, I am the Lord of hosts. I've got a vast army of hundreds of thousands of angels behind me. I will be your friend, but I will be your friend as the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, notice the seraphim, what they say, the whole earth is filled with His glory. The idea of the glory of God is that God is heavy with His holiness. He is heavy with His mercy. We saw last week that the mercy of God means that He is building us. He is heavy with His work, His architectural plan to build our lives. He is heavy with His faithfulness and He is heavy with His grace. That is His love in action. Now, Isaiah moves on, verse 4. He says, The foundation of the thresholds of this heavenly temple did what they shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In the Old Testament, shaking and smoke are often signs of the presence of the Lord. What was God saying? This temple is shaking, it's filled with smoke. Because God is here. Because God is at work. 
Pardon my English, but ain't nobody sleeping when the presence of God shows up. When the place starts to shake with the presence of the Lord. Notice what he says next. It was shaking and it was smoking at the voice of him who called. At the voice of him who called. I want you to take the word called there and put a circle around it. It's a fascinating Hebrew word. It means to accost somebody by name. Accost somebody by name. When you use this verb call in that day, what you got a picture of is that you, you went up to somebody and you started calling their name over and over and over again. And you were essentially demanding that they stop everything they were doing and listen to what you had to say to them. You were going to stop calling their name till they stopped and listened to what you had to say. So when it says here that It shook at the voice of him who called. What Isaiah is saying is, I was in the presence of God, and God just started saying, Isaiah, 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 Isaiah. It was filling his eyes. It was filling his ears. It was filling his life. Isaiah couldn't get away from it. God just kept calling out to him, Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. Why is that so significant? Because when God filled Isaiah's head and mind and ears and body and all that he was with that call, Isaiah wasn't listening anymore and crying anymore and worrying anymore about what was going on around him with the king dying because he was now hearing from the king. And he knew because the king was calling on his name, he didn't need to freak out about a king who had died. God was reaching down inside this man and saying, Isaiah, I'm going to use you and I'm going to give you a, a message about how I'm going to use you. But Isaiah, I want you to know my voice. I want you to hear me. Folks, when we get into the presence of God, sooner or later the Lord is going to begin to call our name. And when God begins to speak to you, God begins to call your name and he'll do it over and over and over again. You can't even run from it. Now, notice what happens with Isaiah. He says, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am lost. The word there means to be brought to silence. I don't need to make God into a God I feel comfortable with. I need to be cleansed so I can feel comfortable with Him. And that's what's happening here. We don't change God in His presence. He changes us in His presence. You see, prayer is not about me trying to change God's mind. Prayer is about me getting my mind in alignment with God's mind and what He's doing. And that is what happens here with Isaiah. He says, I'm lost. I've been brought to silence. In other words, Isaiah said, I can't say anything in the presence of the Lord. 
Now notice what God does, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah stands there, and he doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. And the angel goes over to the altar. And again, he's using the symbolism from the Old Testament. The burning, uh, in the altar, they had two altars. One was one of burning incense, and the other was the altar of burnt offering. And they had coals on that altar of burnt offering that were just red hot with fire because that's where they burned all the sacrifices. So the angel goes there and he takes tongs and he gets that a coal from that burnt altar of burnt offering. That thing is red hot. Have you ever cooked outside and you got coals that are glowing? They're so red hot. And he goes over and he puts it on Isaiah's lips. Can you imagine what that felt like? I mean, if the angel won't even touch it, if the seraphim who burn in the presence of God won't even touch the coal, can you imagine what it's going to feel like when that coal hits, hits the lips of Isaiah? It would not have been a pleasant experience. What is God doing? He's cleaning up Isaiah. He's cleansing Isaiah. Jesus said that, verse 6, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jesus says, what comes out of a man's mouth is what corrupts him. I can guarantee you, if you and I look at the places that we foul up and we sin in life, 95% of it can be traced back to what comes out of our mouth. We all need cleansing at the mouth. And God's cleansing process is often very painful. Notice it says verse 7. He says, your, your guilt, the word he translated there means crookedness or perversion. Your perversion is being cleansed. And your sin is taken away. And the word sin there means things that are offensive to God. Not things that were offensive to Isaiah. But what's offensive to God, because you see, folks, all of us have got stuff in our life that isn't offensive to us, but it is offensive to God. And he says it's, it's atoned for. The word there means to pay a ransom, but it is the idea of purging. To, to purge it, to get rid of it completely, to get rid of the, the stain of it completely, the smell of it completely. When I was a boy growing up, we had a fenced-in backyard. And our fenced-in backyard was where I played a lot of the time. It was also, we had a little dog growing up named Heidi, a little Dotson, Black Dotson. Had her for 14 years. And that was Heidi's bathroom. My playground in the backyard, I shared with our dog, who used it as, his, as her bathroom. 
Now, often when I went out there and played as a boy, I got all wrapped up in playing, and I forgot that it was the dog's bathroom. Now, in those days, they only had really one brand of tennis shoe. They were called Converse. And you all remember Converse? They're making a comeback. I just love to go to shoe stores and see Converse out there for sale because it just takes me back to my childhood. I never thought Converse was going to come back. We're just making the comeback. And they were always either white or they were blue. You could only get them in two colors. Now, there was an aspect of Converse that if you picked up a Converse tennis shoe and turned it on the back, there were all kinds of grooves in there. I guess they were for the purpose of traction. So I had my Converse tennis shoes on and had all them grooves in it. And I'm out in the backyard having a lot of fun playing and forgetting that that's a dog's bathroom. And you know where the story leads. I stepped in it. Now, this is what I discovered when I would step in it. First of all, it was messy on my shoes and messed my shoes up so they didn't look nice and clean. And what I would try to do is take a stick or some and, and wipe the poop off. And I smelled like it, too. And, and then think, well, I, I wiped it off, but I could still smell it. And for some reason, my mother would not let me in the house after I had stepped in it. Even after I had cleaned it off, she wouldn't let me in the house. She didn't want to know what the house was going to smell like. Now, the problem was that mess, that poop was still down in the grooves, and my little attempts at cleaning it out didn't get it out of all them grooves. So I'd have to take my shoes off. And we went from cleaning my shoes to purging my shoes. Now when the purging started, it meant that sometimes you get a toothbrush out and go to work on them grooves. Often it meant it went into the wash machine and it went around. And I mean that poor pair of tennis shoes got a work over. If the tennis shoes had had a voice, that would have been saying, Ow, oh, please stop this. But that was the only way it was going to get that stuff off. It had to be a, a purging. My little cleaning wasn't getting it done. It had to be a purging. When we come into the presence of God and stand in the holiness of God, all of us have stepped in it. Okay, all of us have stepped in it. I don't care how religious we think we are. We have all stepped in it. And we smell in the presence of the Lord. Now, we may have gotten used to the smell, but God hadn't gotten used to the smell. And God doesn't say, come on into my presence with your sin and smell up heaven, smell up my presence, and I'm not going to pay any attention to it. God says, that stuff's in your life. And we say, Lord, I cleaned it up. I went to church today. I prayed. In fact, Lord, it's been Christmas. I pulled more church time in the last month than I do in a whole year. God says to us, I understand that. But the sin is still in the grooves. And we're not settling for your attempts at cleaning yourself up. It's purging time. In my holy presence, I'm going to purge you. And purging is tough stuff. Because in purging, God says, 
that sin, that habit, that place of disobedience that's down in there has got to come out. And you can Febreze it as much as you want, but Febreze is going to wear off sooner or later and the smell is going to come back. You see, folks, the reason we fall into the same sin over and over and over again is because we do a little cleanup surface, cleanup job. We don't get purged. So the sin's never really out of us. It's just been cleaned up a little bit. And when I go into the holy presence of Almighty God, He says, I'm going to purge you. I'm going to reach into your life, into the grooves of your life, and I'm going to point out where the sin is, where the disobedience is, the habit, some things only you know about. And I am going to begin to purge you. And it is painful, and it hurts. But that's the only way we get free. That's the only way we get delivered. You see, I can't allow the blood, cleansing blood of Jesus just to sweep over my life and make me feel good. I've got to allow the cleansing blood of Jesus to go into the grooves of my life and clean it out. You know, when I got those shoes back, they smelled good. They looked good. And I was allowed in the house. And when he purges us and cleans us, we smell good to him. And he says, come on into my presence. Come on into my presence. Listen, when God, when God says to us, I need to step into that groove in your life and I've got to purge you, I've got to cleanse you, it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. It's because he wants us in his presence, but God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And he says, i got to cleanse you in order for you to come into our presence. And my son didn't hang on the cross for three and a half hours and shed every ounce of blood in his body just so I could do a surface cleansing in your life. He did that so that I could do a deep cleansing, purging in your life. And I want to deliver you and set you free. Let's pray.